You spent years driving yourself to get that corner office and the pay package to match, and now you're there. But it's not what you thought it would be. So you've got the title, the wardrobe, the reputation. But what's missing is that feeling of inner satisfaction, or maybe the sense that you're doing something that actually matters. You're exhausted, your temper flares super fast, and you're living in this constant state of existential dread. But your back-to-back diary usually muffles any feelings. Now and then, you might get this sense in your stomach like, "Mm, I don't actually like a lot of the people that I'm working with. And maybe you're concerned that you're becoming a bit like that yourself. But mostly, you don't have any time to reflect. You're just focused on getting through another rammed workday. Sound familiar? Meet today's guest, Shannon Sedlicek, a former litigation attorney who traded in her heels at the courthouse for steel-toed boots at the fire station. She remembers the seductive power that being in law initially gave her. Because really all I was so focused on was trying to excel in a career that frankly was really easy for me to excel, but I hated who I was becoming. We used to joke that we were trained to become little assholes and that the bigger asshole you became, the more successful you became. And you could see the successful partners in the firm were literally the biggest assholes. And we would joke about like, wow, this is, this is our ladder. This is, this is really where we're aiming. And we would joke about it. Like, let's, let's check in with each other and make sure we're not on that path. And we all were. I was. You'll hear about Shannon's abrupt fall from the career ladder and how she realized that in spite of the money and the status razzle-dazzle, that a legal career wasn't actually for her. You'll learn how she navigated the messy middle bit of self-discovery and how she found a new career alongside love and motherhood. You'll also hear the advice that she has for you if you're feeling wonky and unsure in your career that might look shiny to the outside world. Welcome to Enough, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mandy Leto, and this is a show for anyone whose life looks incredibly successful from the outside, but inside you secretly feel empty, exhausted, and never quite good enough, no matter how impressive your achievements are. I'm so glad you're here. I drop you right into the conversation where Shannon describes the painful moment where everything changed. I have no memory of falling. I have no memory of grabbing anything. I have no memory of being in the air. I remember smashing into the ground and then waking up. When I woke up, you know, I'm still my type A personality and I have a neighbor. I'm calling for help. I don't think I can really move, but I can kind of move. I realize that I'm seriously injured, but I don't know how bad. And I'm clearly in shock, right? And so I'm calling out to my neighbor and he can't get into the house. And all I really want him to do, this is, this is back in the day when you had the, the phones that had the batteries in them and they didn't have cords. So you have no idea really where you left your phone in your house. And so he can't get into my house to get me my phone. And I just want to call a doctor's office. Like, I want to go to the doctor. I know I've messed my back up, but I'm not calling 911. And this is, you know, way before I was a firefighter. But 
it's no emergency. I'm not dead. I'm still breathing. I'm alive. We're good. I'm, we're not calling 911. I really don't need help. I just need a buddy to take me to the doctor's office, right? And it's such a great metaphor for my life because like, you know, don't ask for help because you got this. You're breathing. You're good. You're totally able. Yeah, this hurts a little bit, but it's good. One day, while stretched out to her full height, standing on top of an extension ladder painting her house, Shannon fell. But here's the spooky thing. The night before her fall, she'd had the clearest, most vivid premonition in her dream that, wait for it, she fell from a ladder and seriously injured herself. Considering what was roiling underneath the surface of Shannon's seemingly perfect life, the latter metaphor couldn't be more accurate. She knew something had to change, but she'd spent years striving to get to this seniority and pay grade. I mean, how could she get off the career ladder now, just when the money and the recognition were getting good? She had just accepted that 60 to 80 hour work weeks and feeling flat and joyless were the inevitable cost of a big career. There were also uncomfortable questions about her personal life that Shannon didn't want to acknowledge. Chronic busyness has this handy way of numbing out our intuition until it doesn't. I knew I wanted to leave the practice of law, but I, I couldn't. I felt trapped in my little golden cage. You know, I was, I was young. I was making a ton of money. And like you said, everything looked great on the outside. I own not one house, but I own two houses. You know, I'm living with this guy who is in love with me, wants to marry me. He's fantastic. And, you know, I've got a cat and a dog. Life looks amazing. And I am miserable. I'm completely miserable. I don't want to go into work anymore. I don't want to fake it anymore. I don't, you know, I don't want to pretend. And yet unpretending wasn't even been an option because it was so deeply embedded in me to keep on this gerbil wheel, keep distracted. The whispers in my head about, you've got things to sort out. They were super loud and they were getting louder and louder. But I think I was a genius at essentially pushing them down until I had this amazing life-altering dream. You know, dreams are usually very fuzzy and you wake up and you're like, trying to explain it to somebody and it doesn't make any sense to you or to the person you're trying to explain it to. And I had this very visceral, vivid dream of falling off a ladder and really seriously injuring myself. And the vision that I saw was of myself seriously injured in a hospital bed. And I woke up and I'm doing the whole body pat thing. Like, where am I? Am I okay? Am I in my body? Am I, am I in hell? What's going on? And, you know, I wake up and I realize, oh my God, this is just a dream. But I've never had a dream that was so visceral, that was so real. And I get up, I tell my boyfriend about the dream and we're joking because in the dream, I am painting my house and that's how I get injured. And in real life, I am painting my house. So the, the correlation is a little uncanny. And we're joking, like, okay, obviously, don't paint the stairway, which was what I was unpuzzling in my mind how I was going to do. That's where I had the accident. It provided the forced slowing down that I clearly needed. And it was only through that forced slowing down 
that I made a decision that really my entire life has to change. You know, the first thing that I needed to do was I needed to tell my boyfriend that I loved him, but I thought I was gay. And I needed to quit practicing law and figure out what the hell I was going to do with my life. And that was kind of the beginning of the unspooling. <laughs> so you're in a situation where you've literally fallen off the ladder mm -hmm. and you need to confront the things that your chronic overwhelm and your years and years of busyness had trained you to push down because you also grew up in a family where you didn't talk about feelings. It was all about being praised for looking good, winning the blue ribbons, all of that, that all of that stuff. So you're now literally laid up, stewing in your own juices. The emotions are coming up. That must have been hard. It was brutal. It was really scary. I so I grew up in a in a really strict Catholic household. Went to Catholic school, went to mass every weekend. And so I grew up really with the understanding that I was fundamentally flawed for being gay. And so, you know, obviously I'm not going to volunteer that information. Hi, I'm the one they're talking about. You know, the fundamentally flawed group? That, that's me, right? And I'm thinking, and again, this was all so unconscious, it's fascinating to turn backwards. But it was pretty brilliant of me. I thought, well, if I build up enough achievement through sport and athletics, you know, I'll have enough in the bank so that when the volcano blows and, and they're going to find out, you know, there was some understanding that this was going to come out, right? And, you know, that they'll still love me. They won't reject me. And that, that wasn't the case. I mean, I, I did. I mean, of course, I think that's everyone's fear who doesn't come out to their family and friends. You know, my parents did exactly what I thought they would do. They, they were like, oh, nope, sorry, you're not ours. Thank you. That's, I didn't, I didn't realize that. I think that threw me off my game here for a moment, just because I really felt that. Yeah. I'm sorry that happened to you. Thank you. Yeah. Really painful. I think that's every, every gay kid's worst fear. The core exploration of this podcast is what's the hot little motor burning underneath the compulsion to drive oneself so relentlessly, even to the point of mental and physical breakdown. I have thought about this question daily for years. And of course, depending on the person and the situation, it's a different answer. But a common thread that I'm finding is that the overachieving with that, there's usually some deeper processing going on. And that's often unconscious. Sometimes overachievers and perfectionists might be working through an underlying trauma in their big impressive job and they're practicing survival and navigating chaos in the context of that job. And maybe something good will come of it. That was certainly the case for me in my banking job before I burnt out. But I didn't think of it that way at the time. I was just always on, always primed to do, finding it hard to relax. Hey, have you ever had one of those moments when you're reading a book and something lands so squarely that you actually drop the book and go, ugh, out loud, and you just need to get up and go make a cup of tea and stare out the window and let that thought land? 
Well, that was me with this snippet that I'm just about to read you from a chapter on high achievement from a book from the School of Life, and you'll find the link in the show notes. So here's what it says. Many high achievers for all their accomplishments cannot trust the basic idea that it might be acceptable to be themselves outside of any acclaim or notice or distinction. Their right to exist can only be assured by constant doing. Their frantic activity masks an underlying, unquenchable doubt as to their acceptability. Ugh. This is how Shannon explains her experience of this. I got the idea, like between age four and six, that achievement and performance was really how I was going to get love and attention. Very subconscious. And it was through athletics at a, at a very young age. So I started competitively swimming at age six. It was great. Lots of blue ribbons. And that did the trick. That got me lots of attention. That moved on to academics. And then it moved on to the combination of both academics and sports. And it moved on into, into business, right? So I really became a lawyer looking back to get the approval and the attention and the love that I was so craving from, you know, really my parents. That was really the sole object. And the interesting thing is I never got that from my parents, but I got it from coaches and professors and teachers. So I kept, you know, I, I kept going after it thinking, oh, it's this next thing. It's this next huge achievement that I'm going to get. Nobody else in my family has a doctorate. I'm going to get that. And then I'm going to fill that, that not enough bucket and I'll be good. Of course, that never happens. The School of Life book goes on to say that it can be a stroke of good fortune if an overachiever has to face a massive challenge like a burnout or a diagnosis or a redundancy or an injury that might prompt a mental breakdown and a period of enforced rest and reflection. It is here, the book says, that there's a sliver of hope to see that the manic pursuit of success was masking this terror of unlovability and inadequacy. It provides a chance to see things differently. So as Shannon was laid up in bed recovering from her injuries, she started this process of reflection. And here is the bit that surprised her. The piece that I never anticipated was, and really one of the most beautiful things that happened was, and I think Tim was, so my fiance was, I think the very first person that I told. And I told him, you know, not that I was gay, because honestly, I just didn't know. There was just all these things swirling, and I pushed it down so severely. Of course, I knew on some level. And I told him, I said, hey, I, awkward conversation. Uh, I think I'm gay. And he said to me, after a very long pause, you know, I love you. I'm going to give you the space to figure this out. If, in fact, you're gay, I want to be your friend. If you're not, I want to marry you and spend my life with you. 
And for me, it was the first time in my life that someone unconditionally loved me. And it was so beautiful. And that's what carried me through was really his total and complete unconditional love. I'm sure he was hurt. I'm sure he was devastated. I mean, we were planning on living our life together, and yet he had the presence to recognize that I was in full-blown crisis and to be there for me in a way that no one else in my life had ever been there. I mean, I even had, I even had my very first therapist when I said, I think I might be gay, literally say to me, oh, God, I, I don't do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you to another therapist. And it's not going to be a gay therapist because, you know, they have their own agenda. Oh, what? Oh, wow. Okay. So Shannon has left her law career. She's figuring her life out. Who is she? What does she want? And it's during this period of discombobulation. She's in the gym and she meets a group of firefighters who are working out. They get chatting and she's thinking, huh, firefighting, interesting. I wonder if that could be a way to serve my community and and satiate this kind of adventure part that likes to be outdoors, wants to make a difference in the world. So Shannon discovers that there are only a handful of spots open and there are thousands of applicants. She discovers that there are almost no females who have ever passed the physical and um, her overachiever kicks in. And of course, my personality is like, great, give me the challenge. They had a, a test where you had to do a standing 85 pound bicep curl, which is more than half my body weight. And they set you up so that your heels were against the wall, your butt cheeks and your shoulder blades couldn't leave the wall. So there could be no leaning forward. There could be no helping you in any way whatsoever. It had to be a pure 85 pound bicep curl with the bar. Well, literally they're looking at you. And, you know, once I did that on the test, I knew I was going to complete all the other pieces of the exam and I knew I was going to get in. Okay, so you might be curious about Shannon's career choice, and she's going to explain the attraction for her. And just like with Law, she found that there were also some challenging characters that she had to deal with in the fire station. The fire service is unique in that it's a really well-paying job, especially on the West Coast of the U.S. and, and on the East Coast, too. But um, on the West Coast of the U.S., you know, you can make six figures easy as a firefighter. and what was super attractive to me is I'd be working, you know, six to eight, 24-hour shifts. So if you compare that to being a lawyer, sounds pretty good, right? You get to help people, and it's different every day. It's a blast. And you really work. Again, you work a 24-hour shift, but you're never working all of those 24 hours. And it, there's also a very low bar scholastically most of the chiefs in big city departments including my own chief where i where i did land had a high school diploma and i well i mean my own chief said you know you're an intimidating candidate 
you come in with multiple degrees. Um, we don't, we're not really sure what to do with you. And I'm a female and I'm 39. You know, they're used to hiring 18 to 22 year old boys. Fast forward a few years and Shannon has not only been hired, but after some turbulence, she's actually been promoted to an officer and she is thriving in her new career. She knows that her achiever part is never going away and she's learned how to make peace with it and actually embrace the strengths that come with being somebody who's highly driven and maybe slightly perfectionistic. But she's also finding meaning outside of her career identity. I asked Shannon to share what helped her to explore the power of her heart space. And I hope this gives you all the feels too. And then listen for Shannon's advice. If you're someone who's in a career where you're thinking, oh, I worked so hard for this, but I don't think that I can keep going on. I'm scared, I'm confused, and I'm trying to ignore this knowing deep in my belly. I think it was a combination of two things. I think it was a combination of, you know, just before I was hired, um, I met my wife, the woman who would be my wife. And so she was, she was on that journey with me of being a firefighter and being in a really challenging world, uh, you know, very male dominated, very homophobic, very sexist. And we became parents. We adopted this beautiful little boy. And I think it was the combination of having somebody who loved me unconditionally and having this amazing little baby boy. And we had an open adoption, which even made it more special in that we had parents who had chosen us to parent their baby. They weren't in a space where they could parent. And of all the parents at the agency, you know, they chose my wife and I. And... Being a mom, together with being a firefighter, allowed me to see the power of being in my heart space, of being so powerfully present and so unconditionally loving. And I could see, I can see with my son, you know, what what that gift gives him. And I could see with total strangers what that gift gives them. And and how really there's so little opportunity to talk about that. It's so thought of as airy-fairy or gooey and you know, really, like I said, I think the superpower of this macho firefighter, this physically intense job, is the ability to be tender. And I think that comes with a combination, for me, of, of being a mom and recognizing that opening up your heart to somebody else and meeting them there is really one of the most beautiful gifts you can give another human being. You know, what comes to mind, Mandy, is that quote by Joseph Campbell. The cave you fear to enter 
contains the treasure that you seek. For me, the question that I often ask myself and journal about is, what am I resisting? What don't I want people to know about me? But really, it's about resistance. What am I pushing away? Where don't I want to go? And when I can get there and say, oh, yeah, well, I don't want everyone to know I'm messy and I'm sloppy and I'm unfinished. And that's okay. The lawyer part of me really wants to show up buttoned down, well-spoken, no words exit my mouth that were not prepared first. It's deep impact, deep clarity. And yet the firefighter self knows that when you're in the middle of an emergency, shit happens. It never goes as planned. And the beauty is, you know, how you can ride that out and how you can still be present in your body. It, it's potentially a life and death thing. If you can't be present in your body, you might either kill yourself, a member of your crew, or somebody that you're in there to save. And it's messy. It, it never looks like the movies. It's dirty, it's messy, it's awkward, it's hard. And I used to always think that when those times cropped up in my life, I just wanted to get through, like around them, through them, get on the other side ah, so that it can be easier and breathe. And what I really realize now at this age is that's the goal. It's in those incredibly awkward, hard moments. That's the goal. So I'm hearing you talk about the resistance, getting curious about what it is that you're resisting. So this could be, for example, somebody trying not to know that they really have to get out of this job, for example. Mm -hmm. And what I'm also hearing you say is it's so human and so natural to want to try to circumvent the potential mess that knowing this will then cause. But what I'm hearing you say is that if you can, even if you're not a firefighter, if you can get your proverbial ax and helmet out and walk into the mm-hmm. eye of the mess, I'm missing, mixing metaphors now, not the eye of the storm, but like go boldly into the mess, mm-hmm. there's gold there. That's what I'm hearing you say. Absolutely. And it's, you know, we resist that. It's like, think about when you move from from one career to the next. Honestly, I've asked myself, would I have left the practice of law? Here I was, amazing corner office, fantastic view, massive international law firm, had a boss I loved. I'm making bank and I'm in my early 30s. Would I have literally said, I love you, Stan, and I'm leaving the practice of law? Had I known that it would have been about a six-year, pretty painful journey 
to actually land on my feet to have a job as a paid firefighter and what I had gone through, if I could turn back, would I have actually done that? I don't know. I don't know if I would have been that brave. I think it's one of the bravest things I've ever done was to literally say, I have to, I have to do this. I can't do it when I'm in the middle of it. I tried to figure it out. I went to different firms. Um, it, I have to actually extract myself. And this is the same way that I left firefighting. I had to extract myself. Again, I got injured. I had to extract myself from that kind of intense, fully engulfed experience to get a different perspective and recognize, uh, I need to make a shift. I really don't know what exactly the shift is going to be, but I know I need to make a shift. And it's going to be okay. It's going to be messy. It's going to be awkward. There might be really cringy parts of this. And I know from turning around and looking backwards that it's going to be the right thing to do. Before we go, Shannon's going to share her brick of wisdom. And if you're new here, every time we end an episode, I ask the guest to leave a gift of parting wisdom. And here's what she's leaving you in case you're wobbling on your career ladder. You've got this. You can do this. Go into the cave. Sit down. Hang out. You can do it. Get support around you whether that's a therapist, a coach, a trusted advisor, somebody that's going to be literally holding your hand while you do this, but it will be the best journey you've ever taken. And it'll be the most liberating. And it will probably be the hardest thing you've ever done. Oh my goodness, isn't Shannon a force of nature? I loved this conversation and I hope you did too. Now that Shannon has hung up her helmet and her axe, she coaches leaders and teams on how to navigate moments that count. You can find her at shannonsaid.com. That's Shannon, S-H-A-N-N-O-N-S-A-I-D.com. That's also in the show notes on my website. And an important footnote, Shannon's parents finally came around about a year and a half after initially rejecting her. So who do you know who's in a shiny career, but you know they're unhappy and hanging by a thread? Thank you so much in advance for sharing this conversation with them. It could be a life changer. So before you go back to your day, can I please ask you to press the follow button on the show wherever you're listening to this episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or somewhere else. When you press follow, it helps the podcast immensely, and it also means you will never miss an episode. As ever, thank you so much for listening. Let's do this all again in two weeks.